Greetings and welcome to another edition of Docs Talk, the official podcast of the King County Medical Society. I'm your host, Josh Kearns. In this week's edition, a special conversation with uh, certainly one of the most esteemed members of the medical community in Seattle over the past several decades, Dr. Carlos Pellegrini, MD. Talk about making your mark on medicine. He grew up in a small town in Argentina where his parents were the only physicians ultimately rose to the presidency of the American Surgical Association. He was the chief of surgery at UW Medicine and ultimately the chief medical officer. And in our conversation, we talk about all sorts of things spanning his illustrious career. It's funny, it's thought-provoking, sometimes challenging, and ultimately just a fabulous look at a very storied medical career. Dr. Pellegrini recently retired from UW Medicine. He'd been there for 27, 28 years and uh, just has tremendous insights for us. And uh, it was great to have a chance to sit down and reflect on his career, reflect on his life in medicine. And I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Doctor, thank you, first of all, for, for taking a little bit of time. Really grateful for you. Thank you, Josh. It's a pleasure to, you know, to be with you and to chat with you. As you said, we have done other podcasts together for uh, the University of Washington, and uh, I've been delighted uh, to see how you really understand uh, the way that physicians think, the way that medical care is provided and uh, the passion that you have for the welfare of our community. So for those who don't know you and your illustrious career, We'll back up from right now, chief medical officer, before that, chief of surgery, uh, an illustrious career that goes back, 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 back. But I want to go to the beginning first. And that is uh, a small farm I hear, I've read, in Argentina with the greatest influences on your life, if not your medical career, and and that was your parents. That's right. Uh, I grew up uh, in a small town. It was an Italian community that had been given a significant amount of land in Argentina uh, at the turn of the century, and they had immigrated to Argentina and established a farming community. My father was the uh, uh, physician in that community, along with my mother. They were both physicians, and uh, they took care of all the people that were in the farming business in that uh, in that area. And what was it that you saw, that you experienced, that... that instilled in you this desire to practice medicine? Probably the most uh, inspirational part of it was to see the affection, the love, the concern that people in the community had for my dad. Of course, he had the same thing for them. Uh, my father never took a day vacation. He told me he couldn't because there was no one to leave there because he wouldn't take a vacation without my mom. And if my mom and him left the community, then there would be no doctor there. So uh, that was his side. The side of the community was such that he was uh, admired, he was loved. So was my mom. They delivered all the children in the community. They had a very special relationship with each person there. And what I remember the most is the fact that in the evenings, my father would do rounds, uh, going to one home and another and another of people that were either on an intravenous or were using antibiotics or were diabetics that needed insulin or something of that nature. And he would administer the medications, talk to the people, and very frequently he would ask me to go with him. So we would walk 
from place to place or take his old uh, 1929 Ruby, which was a, a, a little car that he had, mm. and just drive from one place to another and uh, and see the, the, the great uh, human interaction that he had with the families, not just with the patients that he was treating. Since those days, I have had a nickname on that community, which I think says it all. My nickname was Carlitos del Doctor, which means little Carlos, the son of the doctor. And today, at my age, when I go to that community and some older person sees me there, they say, Carlitos del Doctor, you're here. So I'm still Carlitos, the son of the doctor. And how did you get to the United States? Uh, med, I, uh, you went to med school in Argentina first, right? And then came University of Chicago. What was it that brought you to the United States? Well, Argentina was going through a, a turmoil, significant uh, uh, moral crisis, corruption, etc. in the 1970s. Um, the uh, government, elected government, had been uh, essentially... Uh, overthrown by dictators. This was a very fascist uh, government, military dictators. And uh, let's say I was outspoken and that was not very well received in that community. So eventually it was clear to me that uh, I needed to leave. Um, and uh, I did not know where to go. I did not know what might be on the future for me. And as I looked around, I found a job in another country, far away, and, uh, and uh, I had an interval of about nine months. And I knew somebody in the United States for whom I had done translations, and so I wrote to that person. I said, I would like a job for nine months. And he said, I will give you a job and I will um, help you enter the country because we need doctors here. And that was Dr. David Skinner. And that was uh, at the beginning of the 70s. He happened to be an esophageal surgeon. He was working at Hopkins then, but shortly before I came, moved to the University of Chicago. And so I came to work with him for nine months. And then I never left him or the United States. Medical education elsewhere. Uh, you are have been traveled all over the world. You speak Spanish, French, German, I think. Is that right, Tim? Medical education. Uh, United States versus other places, whether it be France, Argentina, and everything. Many of most of our physicians, obviously, will have been educated in the United States. Are there vast differences? Some differences? What's your take on on the state of medical education from a, a little more globalist perspective? Well, you know, medical education. Uh, there, there are differences. Yes, big differences. To begin with, uh, with the good news for Argentina in this case, medical education in Argentina is free. Uh, as is all university education in state institutions. You can go to private institutions, too, where you have to pay. But if you want to go to a state institution, that is paid for by the taxpayers. That's a good aspect, I think. Um, medical education is geared towards preparing an individual to deliver care with the resources that are available in the country. And so that alone tells you that the emphasis is not going to be on high-tech uh, immunotherapy for cancer or, uh, you know, other things that we have available here. And so you are being prepared to do a more basic type 
of medical care, again, with the resources that, that, that are available. In this country, you go through basic science education in much more depth, um, and you go through a system that is very technologically oriented, that tells you how to reach a diagnosis, how to treat a patient, what antibiotics to use, what drugs to use, etc., etc., in a very formulaic way. Back there is, I would say, to some extent, a lot more humanistic. It's six years long instead of four years as it is in the United States, but we don't have to go to college, so it incorporates the knowledge of college, and it's a little potpourri of things of that nature. I think overall it was a very good medical education because it, it contrasted significantly with what I learned here. It teaches you how to make use of uh, very resource, non-intensive ways to treat people, including a mixture of love, affection, and, and appropriate interactions with patients, which sometimes you sort of miss when all your concentration is in, in the devices or the methods or the drugs or the dosages and so forth. I know from, from knowing you and from talking to others about you, that, that is a fundamental. You've just defined, if I asked, tell me about Dr. Pellegrini, they would say that that, that humanist foundation there. And I think it's interesting for your career. You were very much a pioneer among the leaders in developing new endoscopic tools, methods, uh, things like that. So really a big transition where you're going from less two more and how did tell me a little bit first of all just about that period of time when you're developing especially up these new cameras and and things and really changing the nature of of how you practice medicine in the united states well some of that is luck don't don't i, I don't want to give you the impression that i came with a plan first of all i had no plan i came here for just a few months and my destination was supposed to be Saudi Arabia and go to Riyadh to work because that's where a new hospital had just been created by the King Faisal Medical Center where I was supposed to go to work. Uh, I fell in love with the United States, uh, with, with the people that I was working with, and uh, to some extent I think they appreciated my interest in succeeding, and I stayed. Um, being taking a new a residency in Chicago again, that is training again. I had completed my training in Argentina. So retraining again, starting from the very, very bottom as a sub-intern and then moving into an internship and residency training and so forth in Chicago uh, was heavy duty at the time, but it really paid off because it allowed me to see the system to profit from the things that I knew and to incorporate new things that were more in tune with the United States, with the resources that we had, I kept being completely surprised by every day, by everything, by the richness that was surrounding me and by the amount of resources that were being put in place to run a hospital, for example, to the extent that I had never even imagined even dream that that would be possible, right? And so I got into that mode of thinking. The University of Chicago is a great institution, pretty much representative of complex academic medical centers in this country, and my boss saw to it that when I finished the training there, 
I would land in, a, in a, another academic medical center, University of California, San Francisco, where I spent the next 15 years. And if you talk about complex academic medical center, advanced thinking, and so forth, that's the other place. So I was surrounded by a bunch of people that were you know, thinkers and doers and so forth, and took advantage of that opportunity to develop some, some new methods. But what I was doing was in and of itself not new. It, it was what everybody else was doing because everybody was doing newer things with newer devices. How did you get into leadership? How, how does one uh, go from being really good at surgery, and, and you have your specialty, to now taking on more and more responsibility? I know some people gravitate towards that. Some people, it's foisted upon them. I have always tried to stay as far away from it as possible myself. I, I'd rather just worry about me. But how did you get on that path of uh, leadership, administration, whatever you want to call it? You know, if, if I tell you, I think a defining moment when I got into the sort of more leadership track, it was with the American College of Surgeons. And the way it happened is, is almost uh, laughable in retrospect. Uh, and, and what happened was I had always admired the idea of the American College of Surgeons living in Chicago then uh, during my residency period. And I had always seen that in America as opposed to what I was used in Argentina, everybody meant what they wrote on a letter or what they said on the phone, and everybody stuck to their word and so forth. So here I go to San Francisco. You need to finish your residency and then work for two years before you can be admitted to the college, and I get admitted to the college two years into my UCSF uh, life. And I get a letter from the director of the college, which in retrospect, he sent to the other 1,000 people that got admitted that year to the <laughs> college. But I didn't read it like that, you see? I, I, just, I just thought it said, Dear Carlos. And, and I said, oh, my God, he, he wrote to me. And in the letter, he says, welcome to the college. This is a great organization. You know, we're here to work with surgeons, help our patients, advance the ideas that you always had, and so on and so forth. And, and then it ends by saying, if there is anything you know, I encourage you to be involved in the life of the American College of Surgeons. It would be very rewarding for you. If there's anything I can do to help, please feel free to call me. Oh, no. Of course, yes, <laughs> I did. So his secretary says to me, who is this? And I said, this is Carlos. <laughs> I got a letter from him, and he says to call him. Oh, he did? Okay, let me see. And I can imagine this poor lady trying to figure out this, did I write that letter on his behalf? Did I send it? What did I do? So this gentleman picks up the phone, and and uh, I, I told him, you know, I read your letter. I have gone to the college, and I know that there are a number of committees that I would like to participate on. Of those committees, I have chosen the International Relations Committee because I believe that because I speak different languages, I came from a different country, I have a different background, I can really be a force in that committee. <laughs> and he kind of told me that in order to be in that committee, you had to be 50 or 55 or something like that. You had to be working in the college for 20 years and so forth. And I got a little bit upset. And I said, well, why is that? Where is that written? I've read everything in your organization, and it doesn't say that I have to be old. And decrepitus, I use the word decrepitus. <laughs> and so 
I want to get started. I want to get involved. And, uh, you know, I kept talking to him. I don't remember all the details, but I remember that he said, well, let me think about it, and I'll get back to you with a letter. And long and behold, within four months or five months, I get a letter inviting me to participate in that committee. And that was the first of, I, I have worked on every committee of the college for, not every, but many, most, uh, for many, many years. And eventually I became the president of the college. But mm. th that was the that was starting point that got me into working with other people, trying to influence other people, trying to make other people do what I thought was best, trying to elicit ideas and then, you know, define a path and, and get others to follow. What a great life lesson for anyone. Hey, he said, give him a call. I'm calling him. I love that. University of Washington, how did you uh, come to uh, UW Medical Center? I, I grew up in the University of California, San Francisco. I stayed there for about 15 years. I concentrated in developing my practice. Uh, I love surgery and I love treating patients and operating, obviously, as part of surgery. And you specialized uh, esophageal, the esophageal tract, essentially? Well, when I was at UCSF, I specialized in, in esophagogastric, intestinal surgery, liver, pancreas. I did what would be today considered mostly surgical gastroenterology and hepatobiliary. And, and that was the practice of the time because esophageal surgery was not very common because it was very dangerous. The esophagus was located in a position that was relatively inaccessible. Uh, there were no real tools to actually change the function of the esophagus in the way we do today. And so I, I did the entire GI, and I had mo much more time to dedicate to medicine, but I always wanted the esophagus as my organ for research. So I did research in the esophagus, the physiology, the pathophysiology of the esophagus. And I love that part of my research. And that created a little, a little you know, place for me to be at. And uh, towards 19, at the end of 1990, um, I had been for some time in the uh, United States Army Medical Corps in the reserves. And I was uh, recruited, well, not recruited, I was ordered to active duty in support of Operation Desert Shield, which then became Operation Desert Storm. And so um, I left San Francisco uh, to go do my active duty. I was tasked to be on active duty until the termination of the war plus six months. And so a lot of my private practice, if you want to call it private in that sense that I had patients referred to me, uh, suffered a little bit in that interim because I was, I was gone. And when I returned to San Francisco, I saw an ad or somebody sent me a letter that the University of Washington was looking for a chair of the Department of Surgery. And so I applied for the job. Um, I didn't get it. There were three finalists, and I was not one of the three finalists. Uh, but then things didn't work out with any of the three finalists, and they went to Plan B, I suppose, and I got called, and uh, I came here, and uh, I interviewed. They gave me the job, and I signed on November 1st of 1992 for the chair of the Department of Surgery. And that was, you know, the biggest thing I did in my professional life, and one that I loved. 
what would you say when you look back over those? How many years you have? 15 years, something like that? How long were you the 20 years? How long were you the chair? I was chair for 23 years and one month. Wow. So looking back on that, what would you say is your legacy, the successes of your tenure during that period? Well, it's hard to call it mine. It was not mine. It was the village, right? Sure. You, you need a village. You need a lot of people to work with, uh, not just in the Department of Surgery, which I was privileged enough to have, but it, but but also in the university, in, 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 in the entire UW Medicine, right? Uh, that was a fertile ground for advancing many of the thoughts that we had in surgery. But if you say to me, uh, what is my legacy? I would say, what am I most proud of that happened in the Department of Surgery during the time I was chair? Again, not mine alone, mm-hmm. the, the departments and, and the people that surrounded the department. Uh, but I would say where in the educational realm, um, the thought that we could have the best training place for residents in this country. And what do I mean by the best training place? I mean a place that had enough heterogeneity of patients, procedures, that the residents could be trained at appropriately. Enough resources in terms of simulation, in terms of acquisition of psychomotor skills, in terms of preparing the resident to approach the patient with an operative procedure, knowing the instruments that she or he was going to use, knowing the procedure from one end to the other, etc. Um, so setting up a, a complex mechanism that would allow us to to uh, educate the residents and to train the residents in the best possible way and offering them a variety of procedures by recruiting faculty that had great expertise in one small area, the liver, the biliary tract, the pancreas, the esophagus, the stomach, the colon, etc. So it was the recruiting of the faculty for that purpose. It was the recruiting of the residents. And it was the recruitment of every best, brightest mind that we could find. So it was a a huge amplification in terms of the traditional white men to include first women, then all other kinds of underrepresented minorities. A lot of people came from out of the country that were best and bright minds in their countries and chose to train here. And we are extremely proud of some of them. And bringing that richness, that diversity, brings in to the institution. We profited tremendously from that because we had all kinds of different points of view, all kinds of different ways of thinking, all kinds of solving problems that were different. And and so that enriched the residency even more. So when you have a diverse faculty, a diverse group in the residency, and then you have the opportunity that I had to enlarge the department significantly by bringing on board the very same people that we had trained. So training that diverse workforce, but then not sending them out, but actually hiring them to work here and increase the diversity of our workforce right here. Uh, We created uh, 
a milieu that was first welcoming for everybody. We had all kinds of uh, individuals with different sexual orientations, different gender identities, different ways of of looking at life from every perspective. And at some point, you know, a few years back, when uh, shortly after I recruited a new uh, uh, program director for the residency, we talked with her about making the development of the whole person the differentiating factor of our residency. So we were not just training you how to operate, not teaching you what the maneuvers were, not just enhancing your, you know, your, your psychomotor skills so that you could coordinate and move the right hand at, you know, at the needed times for the left hand, etc. But we took care of you uh, as an individual that has feelings, that faces many times tragedies, uh, every single day, whether it's in the emergency room or discussing with families diagnoses that are very painful or, 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 you know, letting somebody know that a loved one was about to die. Providing a support mechanism for those residents, developing uh, a whole idea of the importance of developing a person as a good human being first, second, a good doctor not the other way around. And then bringing into the residency a lot of the principles that we were learning from ethics and from professionalism. And the importance to get away from that perception that I came here with 20 some years ago, that uh, a surgeon has the image of this macho guy that will throw instruments to the wall and get upset and scream at people and make somebody feel miserable and make uh, the person next to him cry. That was the idea that you had of a surgeon, changing that to a leader of a team that is respectful, that has a shared mental model, that has an identity that is only directed by the needs of the patient that you're treating, and, and making sure that everyone in that team is proud of what they are doing, is always praising the good work of other people within the team, is criticizing and debriefing when needed, in private usually, with somebody that deviated from the principles of team work and, and team management. And so that was, that is you know, a, a big chunk of what I think uh, uh, was left behind when, when I finished my tenure as chair of the Department of Surgery, and the things that I'm most proud of. Well, then you become chief medical officer. You're overseeing the whole system. And it's an interesting segue because it's now this brings to why you and I ever connected. And that is you've been uh, working with your team now on what you're calling care transformation, which nothing short of an overhaul of the entire way that you do business here from the IV bags that you order among the nine units in the system and the clinics and everything to the, the standardizing more procedures and things like that. Do you see your DNA or, or what you tried to help lead uh, all of this that you just talked about 23 years later in the entire system now, especially as the system has grown and grown and grown? Well, again, you know, in, in the job of the CMO, like a lot of the job of the chair of the Department of Surgery, is, is reflecting and basking on the glory of everybody else there, right? So I cannot say that I leave the CMO's office with all these things accomplished or done by myself. 
I was lucky enough, and if you want to know, I was uh, I give myself credit enough to hire people that are a lot smarter than I am, that will challenge me every day of my life, that will make my job difficult because they are challenging me. An example would be Dave Flum, who you met and you know very well. Dave is is a, a super intelligent individual who has a ton of ideas. And my job was modulating. My job was trying to see how they fit in the whole picture of the university. My job was translating some of these very enthusiastic thoughts into something that could be palatable to the system. My job was to cut the elephant in little pieces that could be digested by somebody, right? So I don't want you to come up with the idea that, that I invented this care transformation. This is, this is the work of, of a very large group of people, uh, and, and in particular Dave, um, that have studied this during a lifetime and are implementing now things that they learn, if you wish, in school. And by in school, I mean, you know, at, at areas that emphasize on health services research, that emphasize on how do you run a, a very efficient system, what does healthcare need to, you know, what, what does healthcare management or, or uh, need now to become a very valuable resource for the country? We grew up, and I was telling you earlier, right, when you asked me what did I find in this country, we found that there was so much richness, there were so many resources thrown at the system almost indiscriminately, and we physicians used them. Why? We used them because we could, because we had them, and because it was appealing to us and to the patients. Many times patients came to me and said, uh, I want you to do a robotic operation, and I had to spend some time telling them, well, you don't need a robot to do the operation I need to do on you or I want this device or this prosthesis because they had read it in the, in, the, you know, in the papers or seen it on television. And so how do you become, how do you do it rationally? How do you do it so that it's standardized, so that in this milieu of having so much, you choose just one path and Im implement a series of processes, use a series of devices that all makes sense because they were preceded, the development of this pathway was preceded by discussions of experts that said, this is the best way to do it. This is the best way to do it. And then you, you have that path that you have developed, you have the team that you have created, people that respect each other, people that are focused on what's best for the patient and the value that, value that medicine needs to bring to society. The kinds of things that you have in the podcasts and the UW podcast that we have discussed. As you leave this this part of the journey, which um, I mean, we could talk for hours about what you'll do next, we'll leave that for future conversations. Um, what's your take on the, the state of the house of medicine, if you will, when you look at things going on, whether the 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 change to more value based care when you see the challenges over you know some people call for single payer all of all of these different things out there depending on what you read it's either the sky is falling everything's going to hell in a handbasket or or things are still pretty good what's your take on where we are at in in terms of the state of medicine well first of all i don't think the sky is falling second i think from a you know very high level perspective 
if you're sick, very sick, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, and you have the means, you want to be treated in the United States. So you come here. So it can't be that bad. So that's to rescue from the idea that the sky is falling. I personally think that um, the movement to a system that provides value is is a very worthwhile movement. I think that that train has left the station. And if you ask me to predict who will be uh, the victor, who will who will win in this sort of battle for being the best? I think th- those who embrace the value-based system early, sacrificing a little bit of the old fee-for-service volume, uh, will take the lead. And you can look around in the nation and see many systems that have really gone through that pivotal change of going from purely trying to make money to advancing a value concept, I think those systems will eventually win. They're winning now, and I think they, they, they will. Because insurers or the government or whoever pays the bill is very likely, just like when you buy something, is very likely to look for the best product at the cheapest price. That's why we go to Costco. That's why we purchase things the way we purchase, right? Amazon, sure. Amazon is the same way. So why have they gone to where they went? Is because they went where the puck was going. And the puck in medicine is going to value. As we wind up with Dr. Carlos Pellegrini, I am going to put in a plug right here. We have recorded a series of podcasts with Dr. Pellegrini, Dr. Flum, other leaders here at UW Medicine on care transformation. It's called The Transformer. And I'll put a link on the page for this podcast. And I encourage people to go. It is such a fascinating conversation in all of the areas. Uh, How do you transform an entire organization all the way down to diversity? And that's one thing I've loved. Uh, going all the way back to your parents in Argentina many years ago, that it's still ultimately about the patient and delivering the best care. And that's one unifying theme that I have heard in all of my conversations. And I know that as you move into the other things you're going to be doing, it's still at the end of the day about serving other people. That's totally right. I think that the, the reason why most people went into medicine as providers, I'm talking about nurses, social workers, pharmacists, Physicians was just one to serve others. You're going to miss this place? Sure. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a I, I, I'm used to, you know, talking myself into parting from something. When I had to stop operating, I had thought about it for five years and I stopped operating. And when people said to me, Do you miss operating? I said, I thought I was going to miss it, but I don't. I miss the people with whom I was in the operating room with, the team. That I miss. The, the act of operating itself doesn't bring any, any sense of loss to me because that act in itself doesn't mean anything other than helping another human being. Speaking of which, I have to, to end with your parents. Uh, I understand your mother had a school in Argentina, and there is still a school there in part because of what you uh, have done to help keep that going, correct? And I see you looking for a picture here, some or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, uh, 
my mother uh, was a physician, but as such, she participated very actively in a very small, we're talking small, uh, uh, elementary school that uh, was in one of the farms. And so my dad moved it to our farm and he donated the land. He didn't donate it. He just said, let's build it here. And it was built in there. And that land continues to be his, but it's operated by the government for the school purposes. And uh, one day, one year after my mom had passed away, they had a, you know, some uh, celebration of her life. And uh, a friend of mine told me, we were talking about you know, the things that the school had that looked like an old building now and had an outhouse and, you know, it's the typical low-income uh, country place. And uh, I said to him, how much it would take to level this off and build a nice school? And he looked at me and he said, are you going to pay? I said, well, it depends on how much it would take. He says, I can do it. I have a construction company and I'm short of work right now. And I said, how much would it cost? And he says, $25,000. I said, let's do it. And he did. So we have a new school there. Uh, we decided not to name it on my mother's name. She would not have liked it. So the school is called the same way that it was always called, uh, Educational Center number 223. And that's the story. Your legacy will always live on in Argentina, lives on here, the family legacy. Dr. Carlos Pellegrini, Chief Medical Officer here at UW Medicine, you're a good man. It is an honor for me to have gotten to know you this year, and I'm so grateful for the time. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh, very much. And that's going to do it for this edition of Doc's Talk, the official podcast of the King County Medical Society. If you enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, or you can just click on them here on the website. But I encourage you to go back and check out our past episodes. We've had a number of great conversations. We'll continue to do so. And if you'd like to participate, feel free to shoot me a note, jkearns at kcmsociety.org, or you can just call us here at the office. I'd love to have a conversation with you and share it with our illustrious membership. I'm Josh Kearns. We appreciate you listening. Hope it's of value to you. And we'll talk to you again on the next episode of Doc's Talk. Mm-hmm.